We're back. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 1 of Horse Mysteries. My name is David Dedrick. My name is Lisa Williamson. And for those who aren't familiar with this show, Lisa Williamson is our resident horse expert, and I'm a resident horse non-expert. <laughs> I'm here to act as the everyman to Lisa's ultimate knowledge about horses. Now, this is something I started last 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 year, and I'm going to continue it. Lisa doesn't know what I'm going to say, but I wanted to talk to you today about... I was watching our, our pony hares eat grass quite, for quite a while yesterday, and I was thinking that horses, like the horse's mouth, is an awful lot like an elephant's trunk in a way that they have like they don't have fingers they have yeah prehensile lips so yeah yeah talk a little bit about that okay well yeah they do have yeah prehensile lips so they can selectively choose what they want to eat and Mm. we had one horse who you get a kind of a grain mix called sweet feed so it'd be barley oats corn pellets and molasses all mixed together Uh and this one horse we could tell did not like corn because she would just use her lips to pick all the pieces of corn out. And there'd be a little pile of corn left, kind of like when I have Chinese food and I pick out all the peas. Yes. So same thing, but I'm not doing it with my lips. Yes. Um, but yeah, the horse is able to do that. So yeah, they can um, use their lips to yeah select the grasses or whatever it is that they, they want to eat. And then from there, it goes into the mouth. And so their teeth... The front teeth are like our front teeth. They're the incisors. Mm -hmm. And so their main job is scooping grain in, but also biting pieces of grass off. And from there, it goes on to the tongue. And the tongue, when the horse is eating, but especially when it's drinking, it actually assumes a shape like a eaves trough or like a gutter. It's a channel. Yeah, channel. And so the water gets siphoned back to the back of their tongue and think about how big a horse's head is like it can be maybe like two feet Mm -hmm. foot and a half long so that's a fairly long tongue and so the water and it is going uphill or anything is going uphill um and then all that stuff gets transferred to the back of their mouth and that's where they because there's a big gap in the middle of their mouth where there are no teeth so it's just gums and Mm -hmm. that's where the bit sits yes and then at the back we have the molar teeth where all the mastication occurs and so that's all where like saliva and everything else is added at that time and so if you put maybe say a pound worth of food grain or whatever into a horse's mouth with all the digestive juices that get added it doubles in volume and so yeah they it turns into a slurry essentially Mm -hmm. so yeah that's that's basically how food gets in and gets turned into nutrients well yeah gets ready to get turned into nutrients anyways it starts that journey yeah now with horses that you brought up something interesting so now the bit was designed with that gap in mind when they started Mm -hmm. yeah like you can imagine if you had a piece of metal in your mouth that was clinking against your teeth all the time yeah yeah then that would be very uncomfortable so yeah the bit has to sit in a place where it's not in contact with the with the teeth, so it's sure. going to sit right against the corners of the lip, yeah. so that keeps it clear. And that's a natural gap there that yep. existed, N- yeah. Not something that would sort of develop it's, no, because they yeah, cut bits. No, it's not something that it just. Yeah, I don't know why it occurred, but I think just because the head elongated quite sure. significantly in yeah. in the process of evolution, and mm-hmm. obviously like created a, a gap where 
the teeth were pulled apart independently. Yeah. So we have the incisors at the front, the molars at the back. The molars are individual teeth, but they, they act as a unit. Sure. Um, yeah, they're kind of interesting. Like they're a block of teeth essentially, but yeah. um, boy teeth or boys have an extra set of like four teeth which are called fangs or tushes, and yeah. they kind of look like like saber tooth teeth. Okay. They're smaller. Yeah. Uh, female horses don't typically have them. Twenty percent do, but I don't think I've ever met a girl horse that had them. But yeah, in the olden days, they were used for fighting. But they're just a vestigial tooth now that has no use at sure. all. But yeah, a lot of these things, yeah, through the process of evolution, they're kind of going away, or they've happened just because evolutionary process happened with horses i think fairly quickly mm. and it's changed from a knee-high dog-sized creature sure. to you know a 16-hand horse yeah yeah yes the selection must have been pretty uh pretty fast mm -hmm, mm -hmm, yeah and apparently it yeah, had to do with like a very significant climate change that happened so, okay yeah okay huh, interesting okay well that was uh, fascinating dear now what is the what is this Episode one, of course. Of, yes, of so our... episode one. So last season, we kind of bookended yes. episode one and episode eight with two feel-good stories. <laughs> so we had the Secretariat baby sure. kidnapping, yeah. if that sounds good. And then we had <laughs> the gamblers, if that sounds good. But they were actually, you know, I think in, in the conclusion of them, they were... Sure, compared kind of... to other grizzly tales. Yes, yeah. So we're, were, uh, we're doing... Yeah, we're doing some bookends this year as well, or this season as okay. well. Okay. But not happy stories. Not happy stories. No, but you'll see when when we get to uh, get to episode eight, you'll go, oh yeah. And anyway, you might actually recognize some names in this because there's a bit of a callback to a, a individual we met in season one oh. in this story. Uh oh. Uh oh. <laughs> uh oh. All right. Well, uh, what's it called? I couldn't think of a good name for this one, so okay, well, I just called it Candy. That's a good name. I guess. It's good enough for Terry Southern. That's what he named a novel. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, okay. Okie dokie. So, shall we start? Sure. The date was February 17th, 1977. Okay. What were you doing on February 17th, 1977? So, what was the date, sorry? February 17th, 1977. Oh, probably uh, planning for my birthday. Because let's see. Oh, because Star Wars wasn't coming out then, unfortunately. It would have been 11. I was probably in the midst of, midst of planning to get my friend's mom to take us to Star Wars. Because okay. his birthday happened when it came out. Okay. So yeah. This, this time I was already in the middle of my Machiavellian plans okay. to uh, Good. Make, Good. That a, make that a reality. Okay. And she did. Awesome. He had a one-person birthday. <laughs> Me. Yeah. Oh, that's good. Okay, so the location of this is in uh, Rochester, Minnesota, uh, specifically at the Mayo Clinic. Oh. It's where, well, it's not where it takes place, but sure. this is where we are embarking from. Yes. Okay, so what is the incident? The incident is a lady called Helen Brock, who was 65 years old. She checks out after a week-long routine medical stay at the Mayo Clinic. Mm -hmm. uh, prior to flying home through a home in Glenview, which is an affluent neighborhood outside of Chicago. She stops at the Mayo Clinic's buckskin gift shop. So the gift shop assistant... What? Yeah, she, well, she's checking out. She goes to the gift shop. I just wonder why they have a buckskin gift shop at the Mayo Clinic. I don't know. It's a weird name. Yeah, anyway, so yeah, the assistant later claims... I'm just picturing it all full of like cowboy Oh, yeah, maybe. Things. Maybe. Uh, yeah, it's thematic, I guess. I don't know. Oh, that's weird. 
the area. I'm, I don't know. Never been there. It's New York, right? Rochester. Well, it's oh, Rochester. Minis- I, Minnesota. So oh, it said Rochester, Minnesota. Yeah. Oh, so I thought it was in, in New York, but okay. Yeah. I don't know. All right, Minnesota. Maybe I should look that up again because that seems weird. But yeah, it said Rochester, <laughs> Minnesota when I looked it up. But right. anyway, so the gift shop assistant later claims that Brock said to her, I'm in a hurry. My houseman is waiting. And this was the last ever independent sighting of Brock. Hmm. So Brock's disappearance then made her the wealthiest woman in the United States to disappear. Wow. Yeah. So hmm. who was she? So does, does, doesn't her houseman count as the last person to see her? Well, that's part of the mystery. I see. Because mm-hmm. she didn't have a houseman. She did. Actually. Oh, okay. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, she did. I thought she meant the actor A.E. Houseman was waiting outside. A.E. Houseman? Is Houseman. he an actor or is he a poet? No, I think he's a, mm-hmm. I think he's an actor. Now you've called me on this. So <laughs> I, my confidence has gone down quite a bit. I thought he was a poet. Anyway, whatever. So we'll, let's uh, we'll go to something oh, we yeah, know about. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know you're right. Yeah, yeah. He's uh, wrote a bunch about first or World War World War One, I, I think, didn't he? And well, kind he, of yeah, like yeah, sad stuff. He kind of wrote rural, a lot of rural poems, I think. Yeah. Huh. Okay. All right. Anyway. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so who was <laughs> Helen Brock? Anyway, he was he was waiting on the car for her. As yeah, well. Mr. Hoseman. Okay. <laughs> so she was born Helen Voorhees in 1911 okay. on a small Ohio farm. Uh, she married her childhood sweetheart at age 17, but they divorced at when she was age 21. Hmm. Then in 1955, when she was 38 years old, she moved to Florida and began working as a hat check girl at the prestigious Indian River Country Club in Palm Beach. I see. So she met a guy called Frank Brock there, and he was heir to the E.J. Brock & Sons Candy Company, which at one time was the largest candy manufacturing plant in the world. Hmm. So they got married, uh, and she is his third wife. The couple live in their home in Fisher Island, Florida, and have a second home in Glenview, Illinois, which is near Frank's family's candy company factory. In 1966, Frank sells the candy company to American Home Products Corporation for $136 million, which is a, the equivalent of $1.1 billion today. Then in 1970, Frank dies of natural causes following a lengthy illness. Huh. So upon her husband's death, Helen then fires Jack Matlick, the houseman that her husband had hired back in 1959. Okay. But then she hires him back six months later and increases his responsibilities. Hmm. So I guess she realized she, she couldn't be without him. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, it was a a fairly big place that they were trying to run there or okay. that she was running by the sound of it. So, um, yeah, maybe she decided that she couldn't do it herself. I doubt that she was doing it herself anyways, quite frankly. <laughs> um, she developed an interest in animals, and in 1974, she endowed the Helen V. Brock Foundation, which continues to this day to be active in funding various animal welfare and animal rights organizations. Hmm. Okay, so the events leading up to Helen Brock's disappearance. Yes. So immediately following the death of her husband, Brock essentially holed up in her 18-room mansion for a couple of years. Then in 1973, Brock meets the flashy and deeply tanned Richard J. Bailey, an Air Force veteran. Is that how he's described quite regularly? Yes. Deeply tanned? Yeah. 
Yeah. And if you see pictures of him, you're like, oh, yeah, I get it. Yeah. So is that like a, a sign of his vanity? I think so. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah it's it a weird way to describe someone. It is. But yeah, I think it was like the look at that time. As soon mm. as you see a picture of him, you go, oh, that kind of guy. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so anyway. A man's man. I guess, yeah. So, yeah, she, they met at a dinner party. Um, she had been set up by a mutual friend who had just met Bailey at a car wash. <laughs> so, Bailey is the owner of Oakbrook Stables, Bailey Stables, and Country Club Stables in Morton Grove, which is just outside Chicago. Okay. The barns specialize in riding horses and show horses, especially hunter jumpers. Okay. So, Bailey... What are, sorry, what? let me just interrupt you yeah. to ask you this question. Uh, what are hunter jumpers? Hunter jumpers, well, hunters, if you think of England back yes. in the olden days sure. and people going fox hunting. Mm-hmm. Um, so a uh, fox hunter would have been a horse, usually around 16 hands, typically, that could uh, ha- have good endurance. It's not sort of a fast, spazzy horse. You want a horse that just goes in a steady pace. Sure. Because often the fox hunt would last for five hours mm-hmm. uh, or more. Yeah. Um so what or you, not at all. Or not at all, yeah. So what you want, though, if the, if the fox hunt actually happens, is a horse that's a steady goer. It's a horse that's very quiet. It's a horse that is obedient. It's a horse that jumps what you pointed at. Mm-hmm. And so that's today what a hunter is, but we've transferred that from going around chasing fox in a forest and around in fields into a ring. Yeah. And so they kind of simulate the sort of jumps that you would see outside in a field into a riding ring. So you might have um, birch poles or you might have a lot of shrubs like brush, that yeah. sort of thing. Yeah. In the olden days, you would have fake walls, things like that, yeah. chicken coops, whatever. Okay. Um, <laughs> jumpers are different. So jumpers are what you would see if you were watching show jumping at the Olympics. Yes. And they are basically the horses that jump really high jumps and really wide jumps. And it's a contest of who can jump faultless to begin with, not have rails, not have stops, and then beyond that to determine the winner, winner, who is the fastest. So you have to be fast, agile, and very athletic. Yeah. And when you say rails, you mean knocking down the the poles. poles. Yeah, Yeah, poles, jumps. So that's what hunter-jumper. And it's a very big industry. So like nowadays, Bruce Springsteen's daughter, she um, is riding in jumpers. Mm. Um, The guy that... Microsoft, what's his name? Bill Gates. Bill Gates, his daughter is riding in jumpers. Hmm. Um, Was she in the Olympics? No, that was Bruce Springsteen's daughter in the U.S. team. Okay. Um, Yeah, and so, yeah, there's a lot of kind of well-known people right now. It's good to see that it's not the domain of just the wealthy. Exactly, yeah. (laughs) Everyone can can play. Yeah, so that's unfortunately what it's very much turning into. not that it wasn't an elite sport to begin with, but yeah, it's getting getting very much that way. Anyway, back to our story. So Bailey is 45 years old, so he's a good 20 or more years younger than our Mrs. Brock. Okay. Um, but the two of them enter into a romantic relationship. Oh, great. Yep. So he presented himself as an affluent stable owner and sophisticate who enjoyed the finer things in life. He drove. You could tell that because he was deeply tanned. Yeah, that's right. So he drove flashy cars like Cadillacs, and he actually preferred red Mercedes convertibles. That's flashy. Mm -hmm. A Cadillac is not flashy. No. Back then, though, a Cadillac was kind of 
a big flash car. You know, you have to think of the time. This was sure. the 70s. So, I guess so they were transitioning maybe into uh, imports. But yeah. at that time, it was the big cars were king. Yeah. yeah. If, if you wanted to look like you're driving a luxury liner. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Cadillac. Yeah. Okay. What Brock didn't know was that Bailey was the son of Kentucky dirt farmers. He only had an eighth grade education. Hmm. He was barely literate. He had a long history of romantic involvements with well-off women, and he used his position as a stable owner and trainer to gain their confidence. He was also married. Oh. Uh, he had wed his long-suffering wife, Eunice, who was a fourth-grade teacher after he got out of the Air Force. So huh. they, they had a decades-long marriage. Wow. Bailey would utilize Lonely Hearts columns to find victims for his schemes. Uh, he would also annually visit Florida to look for wealthy widows and divorcees. Uh, he regularly defrauded many women this way, and again, some of it over the course of his 41-year-long marriage. He had promised to marry these women, even though he was already married, <laughs> and then he would bilk them of their money. Uh, he made more... He made his living more working this way as, um, say, a con artist yeah. than via any legitimate equestrian ventures. Huh. Yeah. Interesting. What a, what well, a guy. Well, go a little bit more into detail about how he actually did this, Jeremy. <laughs> Taking notes. Yeah. Um, I'm not deeply tanned enough for that. No, no. So he began a steady campaign to woo Brock. He showered her with flowers and attention. Mm. Oh. Um, Is that what you do? You okay. already, yeah, Thanks you already lost your interest. Here. Yeah. Um, so oh, he was he was a former dance instructor at the Arthur Murray Dance School. Oh. So he considered himself a wonderful dancer. Sure. And the couple would regularly go out dancing at places like the Pump Room in Chicago's Gold Coast, Hackney's in Glenview, and Fountain Blue in De Plains. And then <laughs> one New Year's Eve, they even went to the Waldorf Astoria in New York City to dance to Guy Lombardo. Wow. But of course, Brock paid for all of it. Yes. Yeah. That's point two. Yes, that's yeah. the other important thing. So, additionally, the couple shared an interest in horses, both race horses and show horses. Hmm. So, in nineteen seventy, so do I have to show interest in horses too? Uh, yes. Oh point my gosh. three. I know this is getting too <laughs> that's too a lot much. Of work. It's a lot of work. Yeah. yeah. This payoff better be good. <laughs> okay. In nineteen seventy four, while down in Florida together at Gulfstream Park Race Center, mm -hmm. Brock mentioned to Bailey that she would be interested in purchasing some race horses and threw out the figure of a hundred thousand hmm. dollars. So a hundred thousand and seventy four, that was a significant amount of money. Well, how many race horses? Uh she just said some. Okay. So in seventy five, Bailey contacted his brother. PJ or Paul Bailey, who was a horse dealer. Um, and he asked him to find some horses for Brock. So Paul Bailey dealt more with show horses, but eventually he was able to source some racehorse prospects for Brock to purchase. So in March of 1975, Brock paid Paul Bailey $50,000 for two yearlings who would later be named Brock's Sweet Talk and Voorhees Love, so L-U-V. Yes. So, unbeknownst to Brock, Paul Bailey had only paid 4000 for the one and 5000 for the other. Additionally, hmm. Richard Bailey was a silent partner in the deal, and he and his brother split the profit. So, the same year, in the summer, Paul Bailey presents another horse, Potenciado, for Brock. So, he charges her $45,000 for a horse that he had only paid 7005 for. So, again, he and his silent partner, Richard Bailey, split the profit. So... Hmm. We'll see this way of dealing. I mean, to be fair to this guy, like, these horses are as likely to be, to be good racehorses as any other horse. Mm -hmm. So 
Just the money, of course. Yeah, astro- yeah. The that's, markup that's is a bit the, astronomical. The markup, yeah, astronomical. So Brock also bought eight to ten expensive broodmares, for which she also paid 300000 total. Holy cow. Yeah. And they cost $300. Probably. So one of Brock or Bailey's scams, uh, which he used on at least 12 women in the Chicago and Florida areas, involved finding a horse convincing the ladies the horses were a good investment, but claiming that his free cash was tied up. He would then encourage the ladies to buy the horse, claiming he would pay them back. Then he would default, and the ladies would be stuck with the board and training bills, and often they were boarded at his place. So the ladies had paid the full money. He was supposed to have bought the horse himself, and now they're stuck, A, with this horse, and B, with all the bills associated with it, which they're also paying to him. What a guy. Yeah, I'm just wondering why they felt obligated to keep paying for some of <laughs> I don't know. I think some people, I think because he kind of, there was a romantic aspect to it. If it was just pure business, yeah. you'd just like walk away. Yeah. But, you know, these are lonely ladies mm. at a time when women were, I think, a little less empowered than maybe they are now. Yes. So yes. there's that as well. For sure. Um, I think, you know, there's a lot going on. Sure. So another Point scam. Four. Yeah. So another scam he had was to get... Con- convince a victim to invest in a horse or horses with him but meanwhile he would prearrange with an accomplice who would pose as the seller to engage in a debate about the price of the horse in front of all parties so ultimately he and the partner who would be um he and his partner the victim who the lady uh, would each write checks for 50% of the prearranged value of the horse's inflated value. After his victim left, his check would be ripped up by the seller in quotation marks. And he, the seller in quotation marks would profit the pocket, the profits from his victim. Wow. Yeah. He got it all worked out. I guess. So, uh, yeah, there's no such thing as a free horse as we know. (laughs) (laughs) There's no, you are correct. Yeah. Yeah. There is no such thing as, oh, it's free. Is it free? <laughs> Might be free for this one nanosecond. Yes, but, it's free yeah. for a very short time. Yeah, once, once it needs something to eat, now it's costing <laughs> you money. And somewhere to stay, now yeah. it's costing you money. And it gets sick, now mm-hmm. it's costing you money. Yeah. So it should be noticed that the purchase price of a horse is just a tip of an iceberg because, yeah, the horse needs to be, as you said, housed and cared for on a daily basis. So additionally, training and daily exercise is required to maintain the horse's value. Competition fees are required for show horses to further increase their value. Uh, at competitions, trainers routinely charge day fees and require owners to pay for the horses or the, the trainers, transportation, meals and hotels. Hmm. Meanwhile, if you bought a broodmare, then you've got stallion fees that will be required to breed to the stallion. Uh, once the mare has a full at foot, at that point, the owner is then paying for the care and board of two horses. So, yeah, you can't can't get out of this uh, cheap in any way. So, yeah. early in 1977, Bailey arranged an extensive showing of five to seven horses at Oak Brook Stables for Brock, hoping that she would invest an additional 150000 in livestock. However, it seems that Brock was growing wise to Bailey as she only stayed for an hour and did not take the time to view all the horses or engage in any negotiations. Hmm. So Brock had become suspicious and she hired an independent appraiser. The appraiser advised her that the three horses she had paid 98000 for were essentially worthless even after two years of training. Hmm. And this person counseled her to invest no more money in them. So this is at odds with the $50,000 estimate for training for the upcoming year that Brock had just been quoted by Bailey. I see. So 
now having a more critical eye and greater awareness of the situation, Brock visits her breeding stock and flies into an open rage, screaming about being cheated and threatening go- to go to the DA. This is a mistake? Yep. So Brock is furious and tells her friend about the situation. Her friend advises her to go to the DA. Uh, so she tells her friend she will do so upon returning from a pre-scheduled routine checkup at the Mayo Clinic, which brings us back to where we started. Yeah, wow. yeah. This is a, you know, this is a good lesson for everyone. Uh, <laughs> if you are in like a situation like this, the first thing you don't first well, there's two things you don't do. Mm-hmm. One is phone someone and then tell them you're going to tell them all the information when you see them. Mm-hmm. That guarantees that you will never be seen again. <laughs> yeah. But also, you don't confront the person. And then just let them, leave them to their, you know. Yeah. Like, it's be- much better to sort of disappear, mm-hmm. you know, sort of, this is a very wealthy lady. Mm-hmm. She could have just gone anywhere in the world. Yeah. Like to the Mayo Clinic for a week, just go and hide there well, not without even making the threat first. Yeah. Like, why not go to Europe? Yeah. And then you're well out of their way. Just go to Europe, have your underlings take care of all this for you. And then you're, you're fine. You're mm-hmm. on, in, on the Eiffel Tower until the guy shows up and pushes you off the Eiffel Tower. Yeah. Because he knows where you are. So again, since 1977. So February 17, 1977. On the conclusion of an almost week-long battery of routine tests, all mm-hmm. of which showed that she was in good health. Brock okay. first checks out at the Mayo Clinic and then again stops at that buckskin gift shop yeah. to buy cosmetics prior to leaving for the airport. Okay. So the clerk, whose name is Phyllis Redlin, again stated, I'm in a hurry. My houseman is waiting. So Brock's longtime houseman, John or Jack Matlick, who had been employed by the Wait, Brock's... make up your mind here. What is, uh... Yeah, well, both. Uh, since 1959, as a chauffeur and handyman at the Glenview Estate, claimed to have picked Brock up at Chicago's O'Hare Airport at the end of her Minnesota flight on February 17th. Okay. Four days later, on February 21st, which is a Monday morning, he claimed that he drove her back to O'Hare at 6 a.m. for a flight to Florida. Brock had planned to stay at her recently purchased condo in Fort Lauderdale. Two weeks later, on March 4th, 1977, Matlick tries to report Brock missing, but is told only a relative is able to do so. He then contacts Brock's brother, Charles Voorhees, who is a train inspector from Ohio. On March 6th, Charles flies out to Chicago. He and Matlick search the mansion together, thinking they'll find her there? I don't know. I guess there's a formality in order to make the report, I suppose. They find a number of papers and diaries upon which Brock has written her experiences and feelings. Matlick burns them in the furnace. What? Yeah. So with Voorhees' consent. Charles. I guess there's a lot of private thoughts Yeah, maybe like romantic stuff who mm-hmm. knows so charles then files a missing persons report on his sister maybe she had all of houseman's poetry that she had pretended <laughs> was hers maybe okay so the investigation brock's final comment to the gift store clerk about her houseman waiting for her caused some to believe that matlick had actually driven to minnesota to pick up brock and he was waiting for her outside of the mayo clinic rather than picking up brock at o'hare airport as he claimed to investigators an investigation at the Minnesota airport could turn up no one who saw Brock there. The crew on the plane from Minnesota to Chicago reported that they did not see Brock on the flight. Brock made no phone calls over the course of the four days she was purported to have been at home. Friends who called reported that Matlick always answered and told them Brock was not in. 
Painters who were called in by Matlick that weekend to repaint two rooms over the weekend reported never having seen Brock at all. Matlick also had the carpet replaced in one of the rooms at the same time. Oh, that's Mm. uh, something. Yeah. Red flag. So additionally, Matlick also had Brock's pink Cadillac's interior cleaned and shampooed that weekend. Hmm. Matlick told his wife he had to stay at Brock's mansion that weekend, which is something he never did, as there was so much work to do. Matlick claims to have driven Brock to O'Hare at 6 a.m. on Monday the 21st, February 21st, in the morning to catch a flight to Florida. However, the first flight to Florida did not leave until 9 (laughs) a.m. Helen was not a morning person, and her friends stated she would never have booked a morning flight. No one at either O'Hare or the Florida airport recalled seeing Brock. There is no record of Brock purchasing an airline ticket for any destination anywhere on that day. None of Brock's friends were aware that she had planned to travel to Florida at that time. Her friends who typically picked her up at the airport when she was in Florida had not been alerted that she was going to be arriving. (laughs) Bailey was, on that weekend, um, staying at the Colony Hotel in Palm Beach with another woman. He told investigators later that he traveled down on February 9th, and records show that he registered at the hotel on February 16th. He received a phone call from Matlick at the hotel, telling him Brock would arrive in Florida on the 21st, so he was expecting to see her. When Brock did not arrive in Florida, Bailey claimed he called Brock's Illinois residence, but each time Matlick answered and told him Brock was not in. Bailey claimed he ceased trying to contact Brock as he felt she had dropped him over the horse sale incident. Brock's gardener claims to have seen Matlick with two strangers in Brock's home on the weekend that she disappeared. One of the strangers was a young woman dressed in baggy clothes and a blonde wig similar to the one Brock usually wore. (laughs) Police found a toll receipt in Matlick's possession dated Monday, February 21st, the day she was supposed to fly to Florida. The location of the toll was very close to a farm owned by Helen out in Ohio. The police searched Brock's residence twice and were unable to turn up any hard clues or locate either her suitcase that she was supposed to have brought with her from Minnesota or her last will and testament. Brock's personal lawyer refused to hand over a copy of Brock's will as he said it would violate his client's confidentiality. I don't know why that is. Yeah, it's kind of odd because you think it was going to be read publicly anyway at some Mm -hmm. point. But I guess maybe just because she's still missing, she's not... I guess she could change it. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, at this point, the investigation stopped. Hmm. The police felt they had run out of leads. The police did not to seem did not seem interested in pursuing Matlick as a suspect. Brock only had one living relative, Charles Voorhees, who apparently had no interest or curiosity in the outcome of the case. It's unclear whether the Brocks were aware that Matlick had a criminal record for robbery when they first hired him in 1959. It's also unclear whether they were aware that he regularly beat his wife. Hmm. It was later determined that at the time of Brock's disappearance, Matlick was under pressure due to mounting gambling debts. Oh, boy. Yeah. However, these revelations did not pique the interest of the police. (laughs) The investigation was considered dead, with no body, no confession, and no forensics. So in 1978, the nude body of an elderly woman was found in a Chicago park on the south side. Identification proved to be impossible due to decomposition. Eventually, the body was determined to not be that of Brock, as it had dentures, and she did not. Ah. On April 1st, 1978, investigators headed by John 
Cadwaller Menk, a retired lawyer recruited by the court to administer Brock's estate, searched Brock's mansion and turned up her suitcase and her last will and testament. Both were sitting in plain sight and should have been immediately located in the two previous police searches of the house that had been, you know, in the same yeah. location at that time. Or they, had they been in the same location. But they probably were put there later, I, I think guess. so, yeah. yeah. So on April 14, 1978, a road in Glenview near one of Bailey's stables was sprayed with messages in red spray paint stating, Richard Bailey knows where Mrs. Brock's body is. Stop him, please. Huh. So around the same time, it was found that Matlock had forged in excess of $13,000 in checks from Brock's account that month. Wait, what's his name? Matlick. So this is, it was okay. Bailey, someone saying Bailey did it, but yeah. then we switch back to Matlick. Who okay, the you, police... said, you said Matlock, so that oh, confused Matt me. Matlock? No, yeah. Matt, okay, Matlick. I was picturing so. Andy Griffith in a white <laughs> suit. Yeah. So, myself. yeah, so we've switched back to Matlick, the houseman, um, not A.E. Houseman. And <laughs> so. you know I was thinking, I was thinking of John Houseman. Probably. As the actor. Wasn't yeah. the guy who said, like, you know, they, they, they made money the old-fashioned way, they earned it. Oh, yeah, I think commercials? that sounds right, yeah. I okay. think that was John. I, you know, it doesn't matter. What am I? This is not the. This is not Hausman mysteries. No. What have I done to the show? Yeah, I don't know. Okay, so he had uh, foraged checks in excess of thirteen thousand from Brock's account. Huh. Uh, he claimed that due to Brock's arthritis, she had instructed him to fill out the checks and sign them himself. <laughs> He had also stolen $75,000 in currency, again worth approximately 375000 today. Um, he signed an agreement to forego a $50,000 bequest in her last will and testament in exchange for no charges for the forgeries and the theft. Hmm. In 1979, during a deposition, Bailey pleaded the Fifth Amendment on every question posed to him, including what his address was. <laughs> In 1984, Brock was declared dead as of her 1977 disappearance. Yeah. In 1989, the investigation was reopened during a lunchtime meeting between ATF investigator Jimmy Delorto, Illinois State Police Detective David Hamm, and Assistant U.S. Attorney Steve Miller of the Criminal Law Division. So evidence of criminal activity was turned up in a case against Related to Bailey's associate, Silas Jane Jr. Oh. Oh. Silas Jane. That guy. So oh he was a local God. stable owner and fellow horseman, colleague of Bailey. And psychopath. Yeah. So Jane was also the uncle of Bailey's business partner, Frank Jane. Okay. We hadn't heard this. Yeah. He sprung this on us, dear. Yeah. As of this, or at this time, Jane, who was the owner of Northwestern Stables, had already been dead for two years. Hmm. Witness tampering had previously been an issue in police dealings with Jane, and it was felt that people would be more forthcoming now as witness intimidation would have ceased upon his death. Okay. So in 1990, there was renewed interest in the body of the elderly woman who had been discovered in the Southside Park back in 1978. Yeah. The body was exhumed. Unfortunately, the body was now missing its head. So no further inspection of dental work or facial reconstruction could be made. Huh. Too bad. In 1994, Bailey, who is now 65 years old, is arrested. U.S. Assistant U.S. Attorney Steve Miller, who has led the investigation since 1989, stated Bailey was a flight risk and asked that he be jailed until trial. So Bailey is charged with 29 charges of racketeering, mail fraud, wire fraud, and money laundering under the federal RICO statute. 
So typically, this is used in organized crime and drug trafficking cases, as yes. well as conspiring with several others who were named but not charged to kill Brock. Hmm. So for the RICO statute to be used, particular circumstances need to be in place. Several people need to be involved, like a gang. The group of people have to commit a series of crimes that are more or less related, showing a pattern. The crimes have to continue for an extended period of time. One advantage of using the RICO statute for law enforcement is that there is no need to prove the defendant guilty beyond reasonable doubt regarding a crime. Instead, the prosecution Prosecutors just need to prove that a preponderance of evidence, or with through a preponderance of evidence, that the defendant is involved. And one of the one of the people have to be married to Lucille Ball. <laughs> oh, he got Rico Ricardo. Does that oh, no. oh, I mean, wrong? Wrong. Wrong. So, yeah. Anyway, so yeah, Silas Jane. If you remember back to season one, he had all those yeah, <coughs> all those problems. Many decades full of problems. So it was investigating his situation that I think they they started putting all these pieces together yeah, and saw yeah. many of the same players in this uh, Chicago show horse scene that were, yeah. Show horse scene? That's a polite way of describing it. <laughs> yes. Okay. Uh, authorities had come to believe that Bailey had hired someone to kill Brock so that he could avoid being arrested for selling worthless horses. Mm. Authorities also believed that Bailey worked with a group of people to perpetuate not just this crime, but others connected to the equine industry. So at the 1994 trial of Richard Bailey, Chicago area horse hustler Joe Plemons, who had been picked up in a Sacramento FBI or by the Sacramento FBI on an isolated horse swindle, but is turned over to the Chicago authorities, offered testimony that Bailey had tried to hire him to kill Brock. Silas Jane's daughter, also offers testimony that she had overheard her father and Bailey saying that Brock knew too much, in quotation marks. Hmm. The daughter is then placed in witness protection. On April 4th, 1994, Richard Bailey marries prominent Chicago plastic surgeon, Dr. Annette Hoffman, who is age 52, in Las Vegas after a whirlwind courtship. <laughs> The pair had only just met and yeah. had been on only two dates. They traveled to Vegas and Bailey popped the question at a wedding chapel. Huh. Two weeks later, on April 22nd... So they just happened to be visiting a wedding chapel? Oh, well, yeah. I think he like kind of... Oh, yeah. So yeah. it wasn't an accident. No. I see what you're saying. Yeah. On ah, April, step yeah. five. <laughs> on April 22nd, 1994, Dr. Hoffman has the marriage annulled when she becomes a suspicious during their honeymoon that yeah. Bailey did not possess a credit card. She hires a private detective who uncovers that Bailey is actually 10 years older than he had claimed he was. Yeah. He is not financially solvent, yeah. and he has a history of defrauding wealthy women. And isn't he married still? Uh, he and his wife had got divorced oh, by this point. finally got yeah. So by fall, Dr. Hoffman lets Bailey return to her residence, even though she has, by that time, another boyfriend. Hmm. But Hoffman and Bailey remarry in December 1994 <laughs> in a jailhouse ceremony. <laughs> I thought doctors That's, were supposed to be smart. Well, no, I guess no. not. So during the trial, Bailey is questioned by prosecutors about why he only called Brock three times and then dropped the matter and never tried to make contact again. It was a theory of the prosecutors that since he knew she was no longer alive, there was no point in making further attempts to contact her. It should be noted that at this time, Bailey was still boarding all of Brock's horses at his various stables. Okay. So due to Brock's connections, Bailey felt he would be found guilty and put in jail. 
He waived a jury trial and pleaded guilty to racketeering and fraud. He continued to claim innocence in Brock's death. On June 9, 1995, Bailey was sentenced to 30 years for defrauding Brock with no possibility of parole. So no parole is allowed in federal cases. Yeah. U.S. District Judge Milton Shadur, yeah. uh, during an unusual sentence hearing, stated that Bailey was involved in at least part of the plot to eliminate Brock. However, Bailey was not convicted in Brock's murder. Oh. So then, a later development. Okay. In 2004, Joe Plemons, who is a convicted con man and self-avowed horse hustler who had been picked up by the FBI earlier, calls Chicago police with a confession. Plemons was an informant for John Rattuno, who is an ATF special agent. He then implicated 11 people, including Matlick, but not Bailey, in Helen's murder. Okay. His story is that Brock was murdered on the orders of another Chicago-area horseman and stable owner, Silas Jane Jr., who was then age 70. Okay. Another local barn owner and horseman who was at that time serving time in prison for conspiracy conspiracy to murder his own brother, George. So Silas was in prison at that time and put the hit out on Helen Brock. So Jane was attempting to... to stop Brock from going to the DA as his farm had also sold worthless horses to Brock and her friends for years and was involved in insurance scams. So according to Plemons' first version, Jane organized for Matlick to pick Brock up at the Mayo Clinic and drive her back to Chicago. A stand-in takes Brock's place on the plane. Jane's accomplice beats Brock unconscious in her Glenview home. Clemens was then called in the middle of the night by two brothers he knew, Ken Hansen, a lo- local stable owner, and Kurt Hansen, a mob enforcer. The Hansen brothers. Yes. Clemens was told to show up at Tinley Park Stables at 1 a.m. He was not given a reason, but stated that his acquaintance was not a person you could say no to. <laughs> he stated that he suspected he was being called about stolen tractors, although it was almost as likely, likely that it could have been there. he could have been there because of a gun deal. He felt he would just be around as an observer. Plemons said in a later version of the story that he and Ken Hansen waited quite a while at the stable. Then a Cadillac drove into the riding arena, so it would have been an indoor ring, pulled up beside a parked station wagon. So he was there when Brock's body was lifted out of the trunk of the Cadillac and then placed in a station wagon. He stated that he recognized a woman whom the horse people called the Candy Lady. It was Helen Brock. She had been beaten and was black and blue around her face. Plemons had grabbed Brock's feet while Ken Hansen grabbed her shoulders to transport her from car to car. Ken then claimed to have heard Brock moan, so her body was dropped on the floor of the arena. Plemons was given a gun by Kurt Hansen and told to shoot Brock twice. Kurt Hansen was pointing a double-barrel shotgun at his chest and stated if Plemons did not shoot, there would be two bodies in the blanket. Plemons then shot Brock twice and turned and left the arena. One version of the story had Brock's body then being cremated in her own home's furnace. Another version had Plemons in the car with the group and that Brock's body was cremated in an Indiana steel mill just off Interstate 65. Two mill employees held open the furnace door. Plemons gave his account under the condition that it not be used to prosecute him. Prosecutors stated that Plemons' account does not provide any information that can be used to bring charges. Lawyers for Ken Hansen denied that their client had any involvement. 
Clemens was unable to provide any corroboration, and his story was dismissed by the authorities. Clemens later recanted in 2005. Brock was declared legally dead on May 1984, as of the date of her death, February 17, 1977. Her body was never recovered. No one was ever convicted of her death. Her estate was divided up, and most of her money went toward her animal charities, which continue to run today. Well, that's one good thing anyway. Yeah. In 1987, Silas Jane dies of leukemia. Thank goodness. Yeah. In 1990, Eunice Bailey <coughs> divorced Richard Bailey after 41 years of marriage. <laughs> in 1993, Kurt Hansen dies in prison of natural causes. On March 21st, 2005, Bailey requests a new sentence hearing for the fraud charges, taking into account new evidence that has been turned up suggesting his innocence in the murder conspiracy. His request is denied. Ken Hansen is eventually convicted and sentenced to 200 to 300 years for several unrelated 1955 murders that were uncovered during the investigation into Brock's disappearance. Those ones are so gory, we won't ever hear of them on this show. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. They're really horrible people. What a, what a crazy, yeah, it just seems so it's, crazy yeah. that that existed at all, like I for know. so long. For so long, and when you think about the type of people that were going to these people and employing them and actually holding them in regard and yeah. in high esteem and I guess and they that's were, it. You know, they had the they had the patina of of yeah sophistication, of knowledge, everything. Of, yeah, being yeah, good horsemen and whatever yeah. else you would want to call them. And then you combine that with just the inf unfortunate. I don't want to call it ineptitude or incompetence, but just the limitations of the police of that time. Mm -hmm. You know, like. And the corruption, I think, that was there's we a certain, also a certain amount saw. Of, yeah, we saw a lot of yeah. corruption, obviously. But I just mean, even in terms of, like, technique and stuff like mm -hmm. that, you know, this is what, you know, like, when you think about murder in that time period, like, what do they have to go on? Like, blood blood type. Mm -hmm. That's it. Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah, and I think the fact that there's so many separate, even within the Chicago area, because yeah. um, it which was, was... Yeah, which was a very corrupt city, obviously, because... Mm -hmm from the gangs of the 20s, you know, onwards. I mean, it just must have just, that whole city just must have been run on corruption. Yeah, I think so. But even once, you know, if you got good policemen, I think, like, what broke this case and what broke a number of other cases is good policemen, but from, one was from the ATF and one was <laughs> yeah, from the Chicago investigation and then this yeah, other one yeah. was from some other end. You know, each of them had little bits of information, but no one sure. had all the information. Well, but that was think, part of the limitations, yeah. right? This, this lack of, of cooperation because mm -hmm. everyone has their own, you know, their own territory where they, they've, you know, carefully marked off with their urine where they, where their the thing is and no one can like trade information. Mm -hmm. You see that all the time when we look at, you know, serial killers from that time period where you're just like, how could no one catch yeah. this person? But, yeah. you know, no one put anything together mm -hmm. because there was no one to put it together. Right. There was no overarching mm -hmm. connectivity between them. And it just, you know, and then also all these departments acting against each other as well. So there's all this interdepartmental competition. And it just seemed, yeah, it just seemed like a situation that where nothing, it's just a, a miracle that any anyone was, any murders were actually caught. Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Yeah, horrible. Anyway, so yeah, this Ken Hansen, totally bad, horrible, horrible person. Uh, he died in prison September 
2007. And then Matt like died. I hope they just throw them in a garbage can. Yeah, I hope so too. So yeah, Matt like ended up dying in 2011 in a Pennsylvania nursing home at the age of 79. Mm. In 2016, Bailey filed clemency requests with President Donald Trump, but it was denied. Uh, Plemons died in 2016 of esophageal cancer. But then in July 25th, uh, 2019, Bailey, by this time 89 years of age, is released from prison. And then on January 24th, 2020, Bailey and Hoffman self-publish a book they have co-written, which is entitled Golden Tongue, Volume 1. It tells why he didn't do this. Ah, it's yeah. kind of like O.J. Simpson's book, right, right. If, if so, I Did It. Yeah, so it's available for purchase for $12.95 and has sold 23,500 copies. Huh. I Probably to curiosity seekers, not to people who actually oh, think yeah. he's innocent. No, I cannot uh, imagine that it's well-written or anything like yeah, that. So, yeah. yeah, I think that's all it is. Why is it called Golden Tongue? <laughs> well, I think... I think, you know, he had the gift of the gap, right? Sure, like, but you don't, that's not how you announce yourself. It's like, now I'm going to tell you why I'm innocent. I have the gift of the gap, by the way. Yeah, well, I think that's the only thing he had, so. <laughs> yes, yes, I mean, ah, oh, it's so, you know, it's so funny. Like, obviously, our our experiences with the horse world, at least my experience with the horse world, are pretty, very local, very low-key, very little of this, you know, I hope that there's very little of this going on and then the pony oh. club world we inhabit that people aren't <laughs> murdering each other and I don't know about it because, you know, what happened to that uh, person who was working on the ed- in the education part of that club? She hasn't been seen for a few days. Yes. Yeah. I think even if you go, you know, Argument further, up over the, testing. Yeah, further up the ladder into, you know, hunter jumper world or dressage world or even the Western world. Yeah, yeah. You don't see that much. I think Chicago seem to be a very unique area and okay. i think you know the the name of that episode about silas jane was the wild west and yeah. I, that yeah. just like to me <laughs> that just encapsulated their whole sort of ethos yeah yeah and so yeah sadly um our episode eight will we will meet these people again some of these players <laughs> so some of these names will come up again huh. and yeah and more it's just so people. weird. It's a bunch of gangsters. This yes, that's all they are. That's all they are. But also horsemen. Yeah. That's the weird part about it. Like, they must have had some skills mm-hmm. in order to carry on. Like, they, they weren't just always fake. They're, they actually produced horses. They ran stables. Mm-hmm. They had successful, you know, show people who showed their horses. They had riders that, you know, the ones they weren't murdering. They had riders mm-hmm. that, that, you know. That did well. Did yeah. well, yeah. But I think, you know, you, you make money and it's never enough. And and like I said, with um with Silas Jane's brother, the one he killed George, Jean, George yeah. um I mean I saw a picture of his place. These people for the most part kinda of came from nothing. Yeah. And the place he had was just like it was an absolute palace, a <laughs> yeah. horse palace. Yeah. It just got um, taken by the government because they needed to put a road through or something. I can't remember why. Uh, and so he, he got some money for it. But, I mean, they were building kind of the American dream, you know, in the horse world, these big horse palaces. And what do you need to fuel that? You need money. Yeah. yeah. And so, yeah, you're going to cut he... corners and be unethical. Yeah. Unfortunately, that's... To them, what it took to yeah, do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Huh. Yeah. So this story, I actually had never heard about it until I was watching Law and Order one day. That's right. And they yeah. kind of 
it they started... kind of conflated elements, like they yeah. took different elements, sort of, because it, right. it had like a horse killing part of it as well, which well, yeah, these guys weren't, at yeah. this point, aren't involved in, in no. insurance fraud, yeah. the way those... That particular one, yeah, it started with like someone killing a horse killer. I think it was like Mr. Pickles or something. <laughs> Mr. Pickles has been killed at Madison Square Garden, and then, okay. yeah, they show up expecting to see some person and it's a horse and they're like what yeah. that's a horse and yeah. then yeah and then it's kind of segued into this uh lady who um was killed who basically was you know helen brock they changed the name but sure it was it was this case and there has been a book that's been written about this as well which is quite interesting but yeah all right well thank mm -hmm. you dear you're welcome that was uh very good yeah we're calling that one candy candy so next week, yes, or next time, <laughs> next time, our, our episode will be called "A Good Shot." A good shot. Yeah, I like it. Yeah, that's mysterious. It's mysterious. Makes me think of it medically, but that might not be the case. Nope. Another think about it. I'm gonna say nope. Darn it! All right. Well, uh, that's a big clue. Nope. Something to look forward to. And hey, everyone, thank you for listening to this episode. If you'd like to comment on this show. You can go to our home website, which is called SneakyDragon.com. You'll find this episode there, and you are more than welcome to write some comments underneath it. Let us know what you thought of the show. Let us know you're happy to hear us again. By the way, you can also go to places like Apple Podcasts, where you can rate or review the show, and that uh, helps us get noticed, because if no one talks about us, no one cares about us. So, uh, yes, Take the time to uh, give us a couple of stars, preferably five, or some nice comments uh, so people know what we're doing. That would be great. We would appreciate it. And we will see you in two weeks with a story called A Good Shot. Yes. All about pool. Billiards, I think. That's what I'm guessing. Nope. Damn it. All right, everyone. See you in a couple of weeks. Bye. Bye. Bye.